0: Okay, uh, by a show of hands, how many of you would say that you are Neil Diamond fans? <laughs> wow, pretty, pretty, pretty decent amount. Yeah, I mean, kind of like it's hard not to like some of his songs. They're just so great. Um, I was reading this uh, interview with Neil Diamond, and it was kind of talking about his whole career, but they spent a, a couple of questions on "Sweet Caroline." And uh, kind of the the writing of the song, the inspiration behind it. And uh, he said, you know, he was always he's always been asked, um, who's Caroline? Who is this Caroline that he wrote about? People assumed he said uh, he wrote it back in the '60s, the late '60s, and they thought he was writing about uh, Caroline Kennedy, uh, JFK's daughter. Um, but for years, he used to say. No. uh, It had nothing really to do with Caroline Kennedy. Um, He said that he wrote the song about his second wife. Her name was Marsha. Um, (laughs) And he needed, he said he he needed a three syllable name to fit the melody that he had already written. So sweet Marsha just wasn't gonna cut it. Uh, So he went with uh, Caroline. Three syllables. It just it just fit better. Anyway, years later, in an interview, he said that that wasn't really the inspiration. His his wife. Um, He said it actually was Caroline Kennedy, Um, and he said that he had never uh, he never discussed this with anybody before intentionally. He didn't want to. He thought maybe he would embarrass her. And his hope was that maybe one day he might actually be able to tell her in person that the song was named for her. Well, he got to. Um, he sang it to her on her 50th birthday, which is pretty amazing. It's Caroline Kennedy. So, um, anyway, in this interview, he goes, uh, at one point he says, I was a, uh, it was the 1960s, I was this young, broke, songwriter, and he said he, uh, he saw a picture of Caroline Kennedy in a magazine. And this is what he said, it was a picture of a little girl dressed to the nines in her riding gear next to her pony. It was such an innocent, wonderful picture, and I immediately felt that there was a song there. And he said that uh, the magazine was in a hotel room that he was staying in, in Memphis and he wrote the song in less than an hour. And we got Sweet Caroline. Um, he said, it was a number one record and probably is the biggest, most important song of my career. I think that's probably true, right? I mean, I think, I think it's the one you kind of you think of first. I do, for sure. I mean, you can't go to a wedding and not hear Sweet Caroline at some point. Um, I, love, I love this idea of uh, something big, something defining, something so significant coming from something that's not. Something really big coming, coming from something kind of small, like a hotel room in Memphis, or a photograph in a magazine, or looking for a name that will be the right rhyme for his song. And this career-defining devi- song is born. You know, there's a, uh, in the Florida Keys, there's a bridge that connects, some of you probably have taken this bridge. It connects uh, the middle part of the, the keys to the lower. It's huge, it's seven miles long. In fact, that's the name of the bridge, Seven Mile Bridge. Well, 47 years ago, Jimmy Buffett got stuck in a huge traffic jam on that bridge. Traffic came to a standstill for like, like an hour or two. And on that bridge, in that traffic jam, he wrote Margaritaville. So Margaritaville was born on a bridge in a traffic jam. And that song pretty much made Jimmy Buffett a billionaire. When you consider the whole Margaritaville thing that was born out of the song. Something so big, so enormous, coming from like kind of nothing. I think that's an important thing to sit with, give some thought to, because I think that's how God works a lot with us something that's objectively small, kind of incidental, not really a big deal, becomes this life-changing moment or creation or happening. Songs, songs that we will sing forever on a bridge, a hotel room, or Messiah, born in a barn, or a stable. You know, when I was a kid, um, I guess it was the, probably it was the summer of 1976, it was the uh, bicentennial, I know that, and uh, yeah, we were on vacation, so it had to have been that summer. Uh, We went to Philadelphia, my family and I, just for a couple of days, and, I remember we went into Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. And we had a little tour and I I was 11 and I didn't really care much about any of this. You know, I kind of wanted to be at like an amusement park. I think we were also going to Hershey uh Hershey Park. That was part of the trip. That's kind of all I really cared about. But this tour guide was interesting. He was dressed as uh Ben Franklin and he was kind of like acting, he was in character, he was pretending sort of he was Ben Franklin and he was explaining very effectively, he must have been an actor or something because this guy really, I went from being kind of like a a disinterested little brat to like totally listening to what this guy was saying about what happened in this place birthplace of freedom in a lot of ways. And uh, I remember this, crazy, this stuff remember. I remember uh, looking down at the floor at one point and the floor looked so old, which it was. I mean, it was probably the original floor, which would mean it was at least 200 years old, probably a good bit older than that. But it was just thinking, man, how old this floor looks. And then I was thinking, hey, man, maybe like, maybe Ben Franklin literally stood right here or Thomas Jefferson or John Hancock, these guys that Ben Franklin was telling us about. Like maybe they literally were right in this spot, on this floor, in this room, where our country was kind of born. 10 years after that, I was in Ireland, I was in college and I went to see the, the cottage where my grandmother was born. And I had the same feeling, like, oh man, like from this incredibly simple, small, kind of like primitive little cottage, like my family was born. Like from something you could totally miss. Cottages in Ireland. Everywhere you looked were these little cottages. There was nothing unique about mine, except that that's where we came from. But that's the point. Like, it seems to me God just so often, not always, but so often presents himself in places and in ways and in circumstances that you could so easily miss. A cottage in Ireland. Well, these three wise men that we talk about today and we hear from today, these three kings, yeah, they didn't miss the insignificant. They pursued it. And what if they missed the stable? I mean, it prob- the stable he was born in probably looked like every other one. There's probably one there, there's probably one there. And then there's the one where Mary and Joseph and Jesus were. I'm sure it didn't look any different, but these guys were on the hunt. These very kind of significant people. We know they had money, they had gold. Nobody had gold unless you were really powerful. So these guys had a lot. They were educated, some say they were kings. We know they were rich. And what makes, I think, these guys so wise is the fact that they knew, as great as all of that stuff was, without God, none of that matters. So they went looking for it. They went looking for God. And they found him in this place you wish you could have so easily missed. Like a bridge, or a hotel room, or a cottage. In this case, it was this barn. And out of that stable, the king of the world is born. And you know, we know these guys, don't know much about it, but we know they were foreigners. So I suspect what happened, we know what happened was, they encountered the Messiah, they realize he's the one, and I guess they went back home. And you know they told everybody, everywhere they went, about this Messiah in places that knew nothing of him. What if it had never happened? What if they walked past the stable? The insignificant, easy to miss place where God showed up. How things might have been different. You know, I remember watching this documentary. It was really interesting once. It was about he was talking about, um, might have even been on the History Channel, but it had kind of like this faith piece to it, which I loved. He talked about what life was like before Christianity hit it. So what the world was like before Christ, even more than that, before the, the influence of Christianity, before that, what did the world look like? It was pretty scary. It was pretty awful. The Roman Empire pretty much was like might makes right. So if you've got power, you win, and you can do whatever you want. There was no sense of justice. There was very little sense of law and order. Those who had power just called the shots. They did what they want. Slavery was the norm. You'd go in if you wanted a a place or a a region and you had the the, the ability to take it, you took it. And the weak had no rights. Ancient Rome thought if you were weak, you deserved it because you did something. They were very big into self-reliance and they saw the weak, those on the fringes as No, they deserved, they deserved their rotten circumstances. So it was brutal. If you were vulnerable, man, if you were a widow, if you were a kid, if you were a woman, if you were a foreigner, if you were poor, no respect and no like moral obligation to help those people. That began with Christ. He was the author of that. He started the whole concept. So before he showed up and then his church and his community followed, it was a terrible world. The notion of respect for a person simply because they're a person didn't exist before Jesus. And hey, we still don't do it right. It's not like as soon as Jesus showed up, it all turned around. We know that. We still don't fully get it right. But before Christ, good luck. You know, so the next time you're reading something or maybe you're talking to somebody and they talk about how religion has just screwed up the world and how we don't need Christianity, tell them to think again. Tell them to open up a history book and take a look at what life was like before the influence of Christ. Had run from it. And it all began in a barn. It all began in a stable or a cave. We're not even sure what it was. We know this much it was really insignificant. Whatever it was, it easily could have been missed. That's how he seems to work. And I think the challenge for us, especially always, but especially on a day like today, don't miss it. Be like those three wise men and be on the look. Like, be in pursuit of God, like always. I mean, I know we can't do that 24-7, but we can do it, I'll bet, more than we, we typically do. More, I know, more than I do. To like, just be aware of, man, God showing up in my life. And don't go waiting or looking for lightning bolts and voices. No, it's more like he shows up in stables. We know that. That's his M.O. So don't miss the epiphanies. Yeah, today we celebrate the first one. It wasn't the last one. Doesn't say anywhere, like, no, this was a one-shot deal. God showed up this way only once. No way. He continues to make himself present. And the challenge for us is to catch it when it happens. You know, yesterday I had a, uh, I had to go to a funeral in Seaford. And uh, I was kind of running late for it. And uh, I just, I'd lost track of the time. And I'm, I'm still down at St. Ignatius. So I'm getting ready and I had to take the dog out, my dog. And uh, I took her out early in the morning and she didn't go. So now I was like, I gotta take her now because I'm gonna be gone for a couple of hours. So I'm out there trying to get her to go and she won't. I wanted wanted to kill her. She was making me crazy. Sniffing around, looking at people and stuff. And on Saturday morning, um, uh, AA meets in the basement of uh, the rectory. So AA people are coming in, coming down the driveway and they're saying hello. And I'm like, I don't have time to talk to anybody. I gotta get this stupid dog to go so I can I can. I'm mean, usually I'm like, oh, a little little small talk with them. So I was very kind of at least I felt like I was kind of like just like hey, and I, but I wasn't really looking to engage people because I had to get out of here. So that's a couple of people walk by and there's a woman was walking down you know, the driveway and she, then she comes to me and I'm like, oh no. And she goes, uh, <laughs> father, do you have a minute? And I'm thinking like, no, I don't have a minute. It's exactly what I don't have. And I didn't say that. Um, I'm like, yeah, you know, but thinking like, no. Uh, and she uh, she says to me, uh, you know, uh, two years ago, I was at mass and she said to me, you had it and I was, uh, I, in the homily, I was talking about AA and just the whole miracle of like the 12-step program, the whole concept, and how it's like saved lives, saved families. Couldn't even count the good that it's done. And I think I said something about the need for us to be honest about ourselves and to kind of be humble and sometimes be willing to surrender, let go of things we don't want to let go of. And then she said to me, well, that's what I did. And she said, "Uh, I've been going to meetings ever since. And that's where she was heading. And she said, I just wanted you to know that. And I almost missed her. I kind of wanted to miss her because my agenda was, you know that's really all I was focusing on. And I came so close to like missing out on this moment and this person. You know, God and his people show up all the time in lots of ways. Don't miss them.